Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, the number one independent Formula One podcast in the universe. I'm your guest host, Antonia Rankin, and today we're answering your questions from our mailbag and patron Slack group. Spanners is taking a well-earned holiday, Bart is listening from a campsite in France, and will be back to host the Brazilian Grand Prix Race Review next Sunday evening. Even when we are Spannerless, we are still an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind support of our partners and patrons. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We may be wrong, but we're first. So for this mailbag show, I have the finest expert panel that Mist Apex has on offer. I am joined by Mist Apex stalwart, Matt Two Rumpets. Well, thank you very much. I just got to say, to heck with the weight, mandatory underfloor LEDs for 23. An interesting call. We also have motorsports commentator and PR expert, Chris Stevens. Hey, Antonia. It's getting to that time of year once again, where I tell everyone it's too early to start celebrating Christmas. I think that's a very valid argument. And making up the numbers, we have the loudest voice in F1 podcasting, Alex Jeansy Van Jean. Not being super loud tonight because there is a sleeping child next door. Again, understandable. So that's our panel. Now let's get into our mailbag questions. Starting off, we have some questions regarding the regulations. Firstly, from Holla. I ask this tongue-in-cheek, but could be good for new listeners. The new regs were supposed to give us close racing, but instead we have one of the most dominant championship wins of all time. What gives? And a very good point. This year we were promised that the effects of dirty air would be lost and we'd be having much more wheel-to-wheel, and yet it seems that Red Bull have been more dominant than Mercedes have been in the last seven years. So what does give, Chris? 
Well, first of all, the the close racing and the domination by Red Bull are two entirely separate things. The regulations <laughs> have been a huge success in the 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 wheel to wheel racing is significantly better because the problem of the dirty air has been significantly reduced. It's not the fault of the regulations that Red Bull and Max Verstappen have nailed it on the head. And I, I liken it to the 2011 season where Kurs and DRS and Pirelli tires were introduced for you know the, the first time across the whole field. And the races themselves were brilliant, but somehow Sebastian Vettel and Red Bull always came out on top. Yeah, completely understandable. Um, Trumpets, would you say that we have to separate the regs from Red Bull's dominance? Well, yeah, absolutely. We've had, again, plenty of close racing, but close racing doesn't guarantee a close championship. And and the point I would make is that it's actually pretty common at the start of a new regulatory era to see this kind of spread. But all you have to do is look at like the cutoff times for, let's say, the top 10. Oftentimes, you're within you know hundredths of each other being 13th or being 10th or being 15th and being 10th. It, it's been very, very good overall. It's just an unfortunate deficit at the top has made it look worse than it actually is. And, and yeah. just to add to that, sorry, Antonio. Um, no, just, to add, just to add to that, <clears throat> I, I think a lot of the people who are maybe calling these regulations a failure are some of the, not to throw a certain fan group under the bus, but some of the newer fans, for example, who maybe started watching in the last couple of years, and let's be honest, we were really spoiled last year with one of the closest championship fights the sport has ever seen. Whereas this year is a little bit more of a typical Formula One season where the championship does get wrapped up a little bit early. Now, now, unlike um, normally we have on this show, actually, the three of us are going to agree on this because I also agree. You do have to completely utterly separate the um, regulations from the domination. And we've seen five cars fighting into turn three at Austria for crying out loud. We've seen following at tracks we don't normally see following at when normally they've got to drop two, three seconds behind to get out of the dirty air, let their tyres cool down and attack again. So actually, if you exclude Max Verstappen from this championship, it's actually been fantastic for the racing and the, and the regs have done exactly what they said they would do. Yeah, that's a really good point. Obviously, with the new aerodynamic regulations, the way that the aerodynamics work around the car does only prove effective if the car is directly following behind. So, of course, when cars are five seconds plus deficit to Max, because he is pulling out these kind of gaps, you know, dirty air becomes a lot less of an issue. And like you said, we have had cars racing immensely quickly. Of course, we've had DRS trains that have lasted entire races, which in previous years we've never had, Matt. Yeah, well, the other point I want to make is it's really important to remember that this wasn't a runaway championship till we came back and we had the regulation change uh, regarding the plank, which I think is the most important bit, and the floor, which is less important. And also very much looking at it, obviously impacted Ferrari. Ferrari lost a lot of time because they couldn't flex the floor the way they had been, which had been helping them with their tire wear. At the same time, you have Red Bull losing 10 kilograms, which is two to three tenths of lap time along the way. And that flip-flop is really what has led to sort of this appearance of a runaway. But it wasn't a runaway for the first half of the season at all. Yeah, of course. And I mean, at the start of the season, we believed it was a runaway in a completely different direction. We had Ferrari, who were 40 plus points ahead until a few races in and everyone had immediately ruled out 
any other teams? I mean, what's your thoughts, Van Jean? Um, yeah, on that on that point, um, I think Charles Leclerc at one point was 46 points ahead and a dear Max Verstappen friend of mine commented, oh, that's it, championship's <laughs> over, um, Ferrari going to walk it. But um, I think Max had a really firm grasp on the championship before we went to the summer break. But the big difference was, as Matt says, Ferrari had to make big changes due to the new regulation change and Red Bull had to make none. They managed to improve their car with absolutely no downside to the new regulations, and that just put them that extra skip ahead of the rest of the competition. Would you say then in some ways we as fans have almost been robbed of a what could have been a fantastic two-way or even three-way if Mercedes were still in the fight, a really great championship battle between constructors at least? No, because Ferrari would have found some way to screw it up because it hasn't been until the last three or four races that Ferrari haven't been making mistakes. But they haven't been making mistakes because they've been under no pressure. And that was the thing. All those big mistakes, the Charles Leclerc crash in France, all the various different strategy debacles that they had going on was all under massive pressure. You know, like when uh, Carlos Sainz was trying to overtake Perez and they're trying to pit him at France. I mean, it's, it's simple, basic stuff that under pressure they just failed on. Would you say that as well, Chris, that it's just been one too many mistakes from Ferrari? I'd say it's 17 too many mistakes from Ferrari this year. But like we would say during the Mercedes era of dominance, you can't blame the team that is dominating, in this case Red Bull, for their success because they're nailing it. You've got to look at why Ferrari aren't fighting for the championship because they're throwing races left, right and centre. Why Mercedes isn't fighting for the championship because they designed a dog of a car. Yeah, again, completely understandable. What's your thoughts, Trumpets? I would be careful about saying we can't blame Red Bull at all. There have been some decisions recently that suggest that we could blame Red Bull a little bit for this pickle we find ourselves in. But yes, overall, if we ignore the uh, financial regulations and if we ignore uh, whatever else it was that was going on, then yes, they have done the best job. They came with the best concept. They developed it best. Mercedes trapped by the budget cap they couldn't they know what's wrong they can't fix it this season so we have to wait on them and ferrari uh, actually did a reasonably good job of keeping them in sight you know aside from the trackside errors until we got the the change that that uh ruined their aerodynamic concept and it, it literally it's flip-flopped if interesting you think about it at the beginning of the season red bull was the one with the tight uh setup window and now it's ferrari with that issue so we can see them do well on single lap pace, but really struggle in a race to keep up. Okay, that's interesting that you mentioned Mercedes. So would you say that if Mercedes could overspend in the budget cap, for for example, or if the budget cap wasn't there, that we could have had perhaps a much tighter championship battle? I think you. I think it would have been much more likely we would have seen Mercedes win a race. Uh, it, they still would be behind because of the time it took them to understand the problem and 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 be able to fix it that still would have been nailed on, but they would have been able to do it this season. So that that's the big difference. Now they have to wait till next season to do it. Okay, interesting, Vangine. With regards to Mercedes, the reason they weren't able to do what they wanted to do during the cop- con- because of the cost cap was down to the fact their philosophy was wrong. Toto Wolff has said it recently, which was um, the fact that they thought they could run the car on the deck and they couldn't. And because they can't overspend like other teams, um, they 
they weren't able to fix it in season. We've seen an amazing actual resurgence from them in the last few races with what they've been able to achieve. But hopefully it will bring us back and we'll have another classic Mercedes Red Bull fight next season. Yeah, fantastic point. And okay, right, that's brought us to a very good changing point on t- in terms of the uh, cost cap. We've had another question from Team FBR at Team FBR Racing saying, if it is revealed that Red Bull Racing also break the cost cap this year, how do you think that the FIA will manage the fallout and will they apply penalties even further into the future? So I guess considering the severity of the cost cap penalty, obviously now that we know that there's a 10% reduction in the testing time, what are the implications of that for the actual team? What's your thoughts, Chris? Well, I think if it happens particularly two years in a row, then they have to start compounding the punishments because it's clear that a lesson isn't being learnt here. Now, of course, we have to remember that it will take a good 10 months or so after the season has finished before we get any kind of data about who has been spending what in this year's championship. I mean, we've only just gotten to sorting out last year's championship budgets. So it's going to be a, a long process. So uh, let's reconvene in 12 months and see where we're at. Okay, an interesting point. I think the issue with the aerodynamic testing, at least, is we won't know the severity of that on the teams until next season when we see how much aerodynamic testing time has potentially impacted the development of the car. What's your thoughts, Trumpets? Well, my thought is it's not just next season because next season is pretty baked in in a lot of ways. It'll be the second half if not later of next season, and really into 24, is where we might see the impact of these penalties. But but Chris, unfortunately, is absolutely correct. How many breaches and how short a period of time is written into the regulations as something that has to be considered when looking at this? So let's just remember, because it is fun to just wag our finger at Red Bull, but let's also remember, Aston Martin committed 12 procedural breaches. And a certain... Um, cynical attitude might suggest that they were uh, testing the waters in the most uh, creative accounting categories to see exactly how far they could go and what they could get away with for next season. So it's not just Red Bull here. It's also Aston Martin that have something on the line. So would you say that these teams in some ways, you know, we need to see if the punishment awarded has been enough of a deterrent for future seasons? Oh, absolutely. And I think for the FIA too, nobody really knows exactly how much of an impact this is going to have. And I I would expect much like, do you remember when they used to tune the DRS zones when DRS was brand new and they would say, oh, well, we're going to make it shorter. We're going to make it longer. I feel like these financial penalties and especially the testing penalties, we're going to go through a phase of them trying to figure out what is appropriate in terms of the impact that it has. Because right now, everybody is kind of guessing at it. Yeah, understandable. I think what's in, what's important to remember as well is that you know they have this cut on top <clears> of the way that the uh, the testing time is already structured to go against the most successful teams. You know, so it's uh, the more testing you get is lower down in the uh, the championship. It's complete inverse. So Red Bull were already not on the back foot because you know they they've already got a pretty good grasp on this car and the regulations, apart from the floor tweaks, are pretty stable. So they they do have a, a good grasp there, but when you add in this extra testing cut, it's just it's just not ideal. And it's a bigger opportunity for Mercedes and Ferrari to try and close down that gap. 
Okay, what do you think, Vangine? Um, so from my, as I've mentioned before, I, I do have a spy inside Red Bull um, in, in the Aero team. And my understanding is there is absolutely no design work left to be done for the car that we will see in testing for next year. So this, the whole penalties will not affect the car that hits the ground in wherever the first test is going to be. It will be slightly less... Um, parts towards the end of the year as they will have to curb what they are doing. But if they keep this baked in advantage, we ain't going to see it because they haven't, they're not bringing updates anymore. They're not going to bring it, certainly not bring any more updates this season. Um, and if they keep this baked in advantage into next season and they've got it wrapped up again by three or four races before the end of the season, we're not going to see a problem again. The, we will only see if it's hurt them. I feel, in 2024. Okay, and then do you think that that could, in theory, mean that other teams have more of an opportunity in 2024 to try and bridge that gap between them and Red Bull? Absolutely, but it depends how big a gap they still have by, I say, four or five races before the end of next season. Okay, interesting. That brings us on to another question we have from Dom at Dom from Bath. He says, is there any hope of the upper midfield teams bridging the gap to the front in 2023, 2024, or even ever? P.S. So pleased to see Antonio hosting. Well, Dom, Antonio is also pleased to see Antonio hosting. Now, what's everyone's thoughts on this? Now uh, I know why you picked that one. Now I know why you picked that one. Because <laughs> Matt never tired. does that on comments of the week. John Vitz, what's your thoughts? My honest thoughts is it is basically something that's never really happened. So the answer would be no, uh, for a variety of complicated reasons. But if there were teams to do it, it's either going to be, in my opinion, Alpine or McLaren. McLaren has been there. If they get the funding um, and maybe uh, their own power unit manufacturer, they they could possibly make that happen. Alpine should be able to make that happen because they have their own, they're a works team. They need the budget and the time. And really here, the problem is time. The big teams have a set of baked in tools that have let them get far, 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 far ahead. And no budget cap is going to take that away from them. They already own them and use them. Yeah, completely. I think what what makes you say uh, Alpine would be up there as well, though. What's what's special about Alpine? Uh, really, it's the fact that Renault manufactured the power unit for Alpine, so they can work together on the packaging. Okay. Um, uh, a la Mercedes, Honda, and Red Bull, and uh, obviously Ferrari and Ferrari, um, and Mercedes and Mercedes. I suppose we could go all the way down the list, but there's a huge built-in advantage to working directly with a power unit manufacturer when you're designing your aerodynamics and when you're designing your power unit. Everybody else is guessing to a certain extent, which is why you see teams like Haas and so on buying lots of parts and following the same general aerodynamic concept. Okay, so teams who have their own power units, for example, Red Bull with the Red Bull powertrain, you think will really have an advantage. That's interesting. Okay, Chris, what do you think? Do you agree? Well, I think, yeah, we're definitely looking at the, the, the works teams and maybe McLaren is the slight exception to the rule because they've you know been there um, before. I mean, obviously, teams move up and down the grid every year. We've seen Mercedes slumming it in the midfield uh, during their earlier years in, uh, in their Formula One return. Red Bull has fallen down to the midfield team. Ferrari went through 
a very difficult um, period in the in the uh, in the eighties and the uh, early nineties, for example. Uh, and they went a very long time without winning a race, very akin to what McLaren is going through now. Obviously, they're you know world champions, um, but of course we haven't seen that since Lewis Hamilton in two thousand eight with McLaren um, when they were still the de facto Mercedes works uh, team. So you are looking at those works relationships. For me, the difference with Alpine, for example, is that compared to Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari, they are woefully under-resourced as a works team. And that's why we've seen the Renault name up at the front with Fernando mm-hmm. Alonso in the mid-2000s. That Endstone team has been successful since then when it was called Lotus in the uh, early days of the Pirelli era as well. But since then, they just haven't uh, found it because the task of being at the front has gotten so much greater since the hybrid era started. And I think seeing, you know, a, a Haas or a even Aston Martin, you know, for example, I know I know that they, you know, are a brand, but they are not a works entry. They are Aston Martin pretty much only in name. Uh, same with Alfa Romeo with the Sauber team. And Sauber is going to be a really interesting team to watch when Audi come into the sport in a few years time as well, because that will be a de facto works entry for Audi. So looking at the teams we have in the midfield now, I would say you can keep your eye on uh, McLaren because their engine deal with Mercedes is a little bit different to the one that Aston Martin and Williams have. For example, it's not really a straight customer uh, deal. And uh, and and Sauber would be the one to watch when uh, when Audi come in. Okay, so Audi is one to watch. That's very interesting. I'll I'll open this up to the whole panel. In terms of moving forward into the next few years, we've seen with a team like Alpine how having such an experienced driver like Fernando Alonso, especially in a season like this, has been incredibly helpful for them in progressing up the field. So, do we think that actually moving forward into the next few years, having a very good rock solid driver lineup could be very beneficial? Back well, to we're Chris. Seeing, yeah, we're, we're seeing this with the McLaren-Alpine battle now. Alpine should be miles ahead in the Constructors' Championship over McLaren, given that McLaren are racing with one arm time behind, uh, behind their back in the form of Daniel Ricciardo. Unfortunately, Alpine has also tied one of their own hands behind their own back with all these reliability problems because they have pursued performance over reliability and they say it's worth it. And where is the evidence for that? Well, Van Jean had his head in his hands at the mention of Daniel Ricciardo. Why is that? Because I love Daniel Ricciardo and I hate <laughs> to see him struggling like he is um, <clears throat> against who is a fantastic driver in, in um, Lando Norris. Um, as far as F- Fernando Alonso and Alpine go, yes, obviously their reliability has scuppered any chance of them having any big points this season. Um, and as Chris was mentioning about... Um, uh, Renault back in the early noughties, in the late noughties, where they racked up their um, their titles. Um, I believed that team could come back when they first came back into the sport. They've moved a little bit further forward. I expected them to be much further forward, if I'm brutally honest, of where they are, um, because that Endstone-based team is such a hive of excellence in the past that we that we, we we expected to see more of them. Uh, where we talk about driver lineups, yes, I totally agree. 
drive teams like Haas would perform so much better if they had two top line drivers. It's why I think Danny Rick should be taking that seat um, rather than bringing Nico Hulkenberg back off the shelf. Okay, interesting. Trumpets, what do you think? Well, I wish to defend uh, Renault. Okay, we have a sympathizer. I wish to defend Viri for their choice to bake performance into their engine because, as Chris has helpfully not reminded anyone, these regulations (laughs) are now frozen until 2026. So if you didn't bake in three years' worth of incremental gains to your power unit, then you are going to be woefully behind by the time we get to 2026. And to answer your question, when will we know? Well, we'll know when the reliability upgrades start working. This year, they've had, I think, eight DNFs across the two drivers, if uh, memory serves me correctly. They are still beating McLaren easily. And McLaren have very helpfully chosen a rookie to Formula One to help them score points next season. So I, I just... Like I said, if you ask me who's best position, it's going to be Alpine because they have the deal with uh, they have the deal with Renault. They're a works manufacturer. Chris mentions the lack of resource, but the money's being spent over time. They should catch up. That's what I would say. Okay, interesting. That's a that's an interesting perspective, actually. And I'm sure we can all come back to this podcast and laugh when you're woefully incorrect. (laughs) Anyway, moving on on to the importance of a driver lineup, we've got a question in from Jake Mills asking, would Mac be best served to go into 2023 with a clear one two driver lineup? Uh, akin to Red Bull Racing with Max 1, Checo 2, knowing their main competition will always maximise a single driver's outcome, especially believing the performance gap through next year is expected to be much smaller. So, of course, we've seen with Mercedes, they've not only got two drivers who are very hungry for championships, but also two very British drivers in a German team. And I've, I certainly before have been very vocal about how I don't think that long term that's the most viable of partnerships, but I, I could be proven wrong what do you think chris short answer yes long answer the long answer is george russell is never ever going to sit down for that what they have done is they have put possibly one of the you know greatest drivers this sport has ever seen with a feisty youngster who wants to prove himself and will not sit down and be second best and unlike you know all the drivers will say this everyone who's been max verstappen's teammate says i'm not going to play second fiddle to max verstappen and they do fundamentally because they are not as good as he is but george russell has proven in this tumultuous period for mercedes that he can go toe-to-toe with lewis hamilton on his deck not just on his day and he's fought him quite consistently this season I think uh, performing a lot better than most people expected. Will that continue when Mercedes begins to find its feet? Because I think when when a team is going through a difficult patch and the car isn't behaving as it should, it's, it's harder for someone like Lewis Hamilton or, or even a Max Verstappen, anyone to, to, to get the best out of it. And it tends to level the drivers maybe a little bit better. But they are going to be trying to put resources between the two of them. There's going to be races where George is ahead or where Lewis is ahead and they're going to take points away from each other, I think. Okay, well, I'm sure Vangine will have no problem in telling you how wrong he believes you are. Go on. Well, 
I'll start with telling him he's right in the first statement that he made, which is, which is, yes, if, if you're going to fight Red Bull, who clearly favor one driver, yes, you, you can't have two drivers taking points away from each other. Okay, if you just want to win, just want to win the constructors, absolutely, Lewis and George on equal, on equal measure, as long as they don't take each other out, absolutely perfect. However, um, Again, Chris is right. There is no way George will just back down from that fight. I think if Toto was to tell George that he has to take second fiddle to Lewis, it'll walk. Um, I, I genuinely, genuinely believe that because he's not there to just be alongside. However, we have been misled by the points between Lewis and George this season. It is no secret that once they figured out that that car was garbage at the beginning of the season, that Lewis is very much focusing on the setup and focusing on developing the car, carrying a couple of kilos worth of sensors every single race. Once um, the the car got sorted and after the summer break and after Lewis sent himself airborne at Belgium, George has been nowhere near him. Okay, he's got close in qualifying, out-qualified him for the last race. As far as race pace is concerned, we are seeing a scarily, scarily similar story to what we have always seen with Lewis Hamilton and his teammates. They can get close in qualifying, but relentless pace, lap after lap after lap, Lewis shows why he is a seven-time world champion. Yeah, I think Lewis's experience when contrasted with George's just pure fierce hunger for race wins, it's a very interesting dynamic that they've got going on there. Um, Just going back to what you said about how Red Bull do have a very clear first and second driver. I think it's very interesting how well um, Sergio Perez seems to have settled into that role. I think we can all agree he's really taken taken it and run with it exactly as he was meant to. Red Bull seem to have found the X factor that they've been kind of chopping and changing, looking for for the past few years. Matt, what do you think? Do you think Checo's been doing a good job this year? Do I think he's been doing a good job this year? Yeah, absolutely. He's doing exactly what he's been paid to do. Do I think Albon would have done a similar job? Well, you know my views on this subject. Yeah, probably so at this point. But I want to get back to the original proposition of this argument, which is, should they have a clear one and two? And my answer is, depends on which championship they want to win. If they want to win the driver's championship, you want to clear one and two. There's very little argument about that. If you want to win the constructors, then you need both of your drivers motivated, and you need to favor whoever gets ahead in the race and maximize both drivers' finishing positions. So it depends. If I'm Mercedes, do I want that constructors more, or do I want Lewis to have his eighth? And then, if you want Lewis to have his eighth, you do have the problem of motivation for George, who, although he's done a reasonable job this year, I, I'm, I'm going to be in the Van Gene camp on this one. He has yet to show me he is Hamilton's equal in any serious way. I think it's interesting that you should mention motivation. I think with George that, you know, there is the argument thrown around that he did stay at Williams a year too long, perhaps. Obviously, going into next year, it'll be his second season with Mercedes. Would you then, given the opportunity to put a one-two, would you then put him as the second driver then um, to Lewis? I think he will. I think he is that regardless of what anyone says. Okay. I think, I think, I think practically speaking, you know, maybe not, maybe not by the law of Mercedes. The law of Mercedes is whoever is ahead gets the preferential treatment. But I think the reality at Mercedes is Lewis has been there a long time. The car has been developed for him. Lewis has won seven, technically, potentially eight championships. George showed up this year. 
They might like George. They might think he's fast. They might think he's doing a good job. But it's Lewis's team. And let's just not kid ourselves about that. I think that's a very respectable idea. Yeah, Chris, what do you think? I think what goes against George Russell in this as well is that the plan, as far as we were all aware, was that George was going to turn up at Mercedes and learn from mm. the greatest driver to adorn this sport. Much much, uh, much in the same way that Alain Prost came in as Nicky Lauda's teammate at McLaren and just just said, I'm not here to win the world championship. I'm here to learn from you. And then as soon as Lauda said bye-bye, Prost entered the number one spot and you know reformed the sport in terms of the record books. And I th- think we were going to see something similar because we, we didn't think Lewis Hamilton was going to have more than a couple of years left in him. Suddenly, in the last couple of weeks, I'm signing a new contract with Mercedes, a new multi-year deal with Mercedes. You ain't getting rid of me. I'm going to be racing well into my 40s. What is George Russell supposed to do now? Well, yeah, it does seem that Hamilton has had a new lease of life, it seems, this season. Obviously, he signed a new contract that was due to last two years, so until the end of next season. And I know I, for one, at least thought, well, that's that then. You know, George will come along. He'll take on a mentee kind of position, learn for two years. Then Lewis will retire and George will take the front foot. But now with the news that he's clearly planning on stick around, sticking around, we might be seeing Lewis in the sport for a lot longer and that could really have implications for the dynamics between the teammates. What's your thoughts, Ranjin? I think we have a very um, frustrated George Russell. We have a George Russell who had been watching Valtteri Bottas in what he believed was his seat, getting pole positions, winning the odd race, fighting for podiums. And then all of a sudden he's jumped to the Mercedes and he can't get better than fifth. Um, and then the odd podium when Ferrari messes everything up. Um, and then all, and then he's been buoyed by the fact that he's beating his seven-time world champion teammate. And then all of a sudden, Lewis has come on strong. So I think he's very frustrated. And that was the whole thing was, I think if Merck had been better this season, I think George would have been happy to sit behind Lewis, let Lewis get his eighth, and Lewis would dance off into the sunset. And that was very much, I think, the plan. Lewis was supposed to retire, and then George was supposed to take the de facto number one. And now George is thinking, damn, that's not happening, and I now do genuinely have to go and beat Lewis. But it is, as Matt says, it is Lewis's team. And it's hard to take that away, because if it's close, and if it's between Mercedes and Red Bull being Max, who are they going to put against him? Well, that's a very good point. And I think it's really interesting, actually, that you mentioned Ferrari and kind of a lot of teams do have, unfortunately, this season, the success of a lot of teams is dependent on the misfortune of a lot of the other teams. So let's move it on, move it on to another question now. We've got one from uh, Osliam who asks us which team outside of the big three will be the first to win a championship? Because obviously this season, at least it's been a huge amount of focus on the top three and you know even Mercedes have kind of been the best of the rest for the majority of the season so if we just go through the panel what's our top bet for the first out of the top three uh Chris I think the others will probably said the same apart from Matt because he'll choose Alpine but I'm going to say McLaren (laughs) okay what makes you say McLaren I think of the current teams outside of the top three they are the best equipped um the the best resourced and Probably the team with the best long-term prospects. Uh, because when you look at 
the other teams. Aston Martin doesn't seem to be making the same tracks that we expected. I know they've got a lot of um, resources that are in uh, development, their new wind tunnel, new headquarters, and all these things that are happening at Silverstone at the moment. Um, but I'll believe that when I when I see it. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, Salva, yeah, they've got an engine work still coming up, but maybe they don't have what it takes to challenge the, the top three. Um, Haas, I uh, probably won't be in the sport by the end of the decade, um, I would imagine. Uh, and, you know, the, when I look at the other teams, I don't see that plan, but I can see McLaren returning to its former glory. Yeah, I mean, in the f- last few years, they've definitely been up there. I think, was it 2020 that they got third or fourth in the championship? You know, they're not miles off. So I think that's a pretty reasonable thing. Now, is Matt going to come in and tell us that it's going to be Alpine? Well, I could come in and say that. After all, if we're talking about teams that have won championships in the past, they're basically two, Alpine and McLaren. Mm -hmm. Both have been world champions and dominant at the time. But if you ask me the closest one, if McLaren fails to get an engine partner, I'm actually going to say Aston. Aston Martin. How interesting. Go on. Because I think, looking at what they've done this season, they've stolen a big chunk of Red Bull's aerodynamics department. Mm -hmm. They're clearly committed to taking every rule as far as it can go, and maybe occasionally beyond. Slightly further. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But what I see them potentially having is the wherewithal under Lawrence to get their own engine deal. And I would say to you that my that if you really ask me to, to answer this question, I'll say whichever of those three gets the engine deal soonest. And of course, I guess we can't overlook Sauber at this point because they have one coming in 26. But I would say if you don't have your own engine deal, you're not winning a championship. Okay, interesting. Vanjean, what's your take on this? 
Well, I did think Matt was going to steal mine, but instead he went the complete wrong way and is completely wrong because, unfortunately, Mr. Stroll has too much faith in his son. And, I mean, Fernando Alonso is going to turn up at that team and burn it to the ground like he does with every other team that he ever joins, especially one that's going to definitely favour the other driver. Um, I, I think it's a crazy, crazy call from Aston Martin. Now, mine does come with a big caveat. Okay, as long cap? as as long as they have the budget and the funding and a crap is given about being in the sport, I'm going with Audi. Now, I don't like the guys that Audi are taking when they come into 2026. I was very much expecting them to bring in their own complete from the ground up works team. And that's not happening, unfortunately. But if all of a sudden their engine is good, because that's the key factor here. If the engine is good when it hits the ground and they all of a sudden think, ooh, we've got a shot here, pile everything into it, buy out Salba, I think the next team to win a championship, probably before, probably maybe close to the turn of the decade, is Audi. Okay, so you're saying they're not going to necessarily come in and storm it, but they might build their way up there. Absolutely. I think they'll dip their toe in the water. It all depends on if that engine's good. If they turn up and they've got a Honda-type deal going on, I think they'll run away very, very quickly. Well, I personally would love to see a, a Braunian situation where they kind of come in and blitz <clears throat> it for a couple of years and then disappear into the distance with only legend left in their wake. But um, I'm going to very controversially actually agree with Chris on this one. I do think actually that McLaren are in very, very good stead to do very well. I'm in incredibly interested actually to see how Piastri gets on. I think, you know, a rookie driver coming in, he's historically immensely successful, you know, Formula Renault, Formula 3, Formula 2, all in successive years is no is no mean feat. He's absolutely got the qualifications to be there and I do think actually with the right resources with the with the right lineup they could do very very well. And that brings us on to another round of panel fire and go questions coming from David we've been asked which if any rookies in 2023 will beat their teammates now I'm going to start this one off and I won't lie I would be very surprised not to see Piastri and Lando Norris have a great kind of head-to-head season next year is anyone going to disagree with me on that is uh, what is Piastri the only rookie uh, next year, we should so, define uh, what we mean by rookie. I suppose. I, what, 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 do you, what do you mean? How do you? How is it anything other than in their first season? I'll leave you to debate that in your head for a little bit while I give my thoughts on Piastri because I do think he has a very good chance of taking the fight to Norris in terms of his raw skill. I think it's going to be entirely dependent on how Piastri adapts to what we know to be a very tricky McLaren that Norris has sort of tamed and has been able to get sort of designed around him uh, now. Piastri's credentials, as you mentioned, Antonia, are second to none. And I don't think anyone has been able to win Formula Renault, Formula 3 and Formula 2. We've seen a few people do the F3, F3 and F2 back-to-back, Charles Leclerc, George Russell, for example. But to do, to do it in all three of those years... Um, Phenomenal. As well, yeah. Uh, so... If he isn't on Norris's pace, then I don't think we can really blame the driver. Yeah, that's an interesting point. At what point do we say, actually, maybe Ricardo wasn't 
quite the issue with the car you know if if Piastri isn't on Lando's pace I will I will be quite surprised okay well if we redefine rookie in this question maybe to a new teammate pairing so if we say we've got some new driver lineups coming this year for teams you know Aston Martin there's loads of them out of all of the new pairings who are we hedging our bets to to take the cheese on this one Vangine what do you think so I'm going to start with the Piastri Lando thing because with the way Piastri has had to enter this sport he has to perform straight out the box there's almost no a lot um, of pressure on his shoulders absolutely but I think because of the way he's come in and demanded certain stature because of the way he's pushed his contract around he has to perform instantly and i think he's going to get his butt kicked by lando oh really I, I i believe lando is a generational talent i believe lando is up there with max with lewis with george with Charles Leclerc. i believe he is in that top echelon um which is part of the reason danny rick has looked so bad there are other reasons i think danny rick has struggled which i'm not going to go into now because we don't have time for that and it's technical and matt will get all excited um <laughs> as for other team pairings um <laughs> the one i mentioned before fernando killer team alonso and <laughs> daddy boy stroll um i I mean, on raw pace, Lance doesn't stand a chance against Fernando Alonso, despite the fact the guy's 473 years old. <laughs> he he is still phenomenally fast, no matter what I think of the guy as a human being, as a teammate. But what is that team going to do to make Lance not look silly is my is my caveat on that. It's going to be very, very interesting. Maybe we'll see a few more of um, Fernando Alonso's cars stop on track. Um, Then you've got Pierre Gasly and Ocon. Now, I think this has got fireworks written all over it. I think they're both talented young drivers, but they have history Mm -hmm. and stuff could really, really go wrong. Um, But if they're mates again, like they said they would be, then it could be all right. But I still think Ocon will have the edge over Pierre, but I've never been the biggest fan of Pierre Gasly as far as raw pace is concerned. You know what? I was waiting for somebody to mention these two, the Frenchmen butting heads. I am so, so excited to see how these two get on. Like you said, there have been some fireworks in the past and I think we could have such an interesting battle between them that that will make our second nationality pair up on the grid, obviously, as well as the Mercedes boys. I think we could really see some great racing between them and some real nitty gritty. What do you think, Matt? Well, I think, yeah, I think we could. My honest opinion agrees with Jeansy for the simple fact that Ocon's been at the team for a couple of years now and knows it. And Gasly's coming to a new team. And I think that's just going to be a disadvantage, regardless of what you think of them as drivers. I think Ocon has the advantage. And I know everyone is predicting fireworks. And I'm not going to say it's not going to happen. But I mean, honestly, Ocon's been at a team with Fernando Alonso for two years. And we haven't really seen a lot of toys being thrown out of the pram from either of them so yeah like i i get it's a good dramatic narrative setup the the history between them but the reality on the ground especially uh, from Ocon and alonzo suggests to me that that they're both probably capable of being professionals the the person that nobody is talking about and when, when they said rookies my sense was anyone who's in their first year or two or maybe three, like if Schumacher stuck around, maybe. The, the, but the pairing I want to talk about is Joe and Botas. I am 
fascinated by what's going to happen there because Joe went through a, a period of time looking to be equal to him. And then all of a sudden, Botas has turned back up. And I don't really know what's going on there. But if you ask me, like, like who might outpoint the other one? I, I, think, I think Joe might actually weirdly have an interesting shot at outpointing Botas next season. Okay, so even with Bottas's phenomenal record at the front of the field, you think Joe could really to pull a sneaky on him? Yeah, I, th- I think that he could because Joe, instead of focusing on single lap pace, has been working very much on being consistent and doing the things you need to do to do well in races at, in an mm-hmm. era where qualifying matters less while doing those other things therefore matters a lot more. And and we've seen him have a set of good races, races finishing much better than Botas, where Botas has done things like, oh, I'm just going to drive into the gravel at Coda because oopsies. You know, so <laughs> I don't know if he's distracted or he's thinking about his next bike race or what. But 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 it's interesting to me that 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 they could be similar on performance time to time. And I'm I want to see more out of Joe. I want to see like a proper challenge next season. Well, uh, to be fair, I do think we can all agree. I mean, I at least was certainly guilty of this. I criminally underestimated Joe Granu coming into into his Formula One career. I mean, i I wasn't expect i was I wasn't expecting him to fail per se, but I wasn't expecting him just to slot into the team as well as he has done. You know, he doesn't feel like a rookie. He does feel like he's got great chemistry with the car, great chemistry driving wise with with Bottas, and it does feel you're right. Like he has slotted in very nice. No, I completely agree. Okay, right, let's move on. Uh, we've got a question from Weitzer van Brimbrum. Um, and he said, sometimes this season, it feels like it's only controversy that grabs the attention. What was the one thing you really loved and liked about F1 this season? Let's go through our panel. Vangine, what do you think? What's your lo- one thing? I love this question um, because he's absolutely right. Because there's been so much controversy doused from the the run over from last season and obviously with all the stuff that's going on at the moment. uh, We haven't really gone back to look at the on-track stuff that's been great. And the thing that I have just loved, and we did touch on it earlier, is these regulations have worked. And okay, it's not been up the front, but we have seen some absolutely insane battles at the uh, in the midfield and 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 the front uh, and the back of the front should i say um if that makes any sense at all um and we're seeing close racing we're seeing people hounding now i've said this before where it comes to hard racing i don't mind if there's not lots of overtaking you don't i don't need a billion overtakes in a race for me to enjoy a race what i love is people piling pressure on. Now, when you're two, three seconds back trying to keep your tyres cool and keep the car cool out of the dirty air from the car ahead, that's not really putting any pressure on apart from someone having to look off their tyres better than the other. When you have somebody up your gearbox for 10, 12, 15 laps, that is proper full-on pressure. You're watching yourself at every single braking zone, making sure somebody's not having a lunge. And that is pressure. And that's the racing I love to watch because there might only be one attempt at an overtake, but it's been coming for so many laps and it builds and it builds and it builds. And maybe someone locks up and goes off the circuit or they just pull off an amazing move and and make a dive and make it work. And that's what I've loved about this is the tension that you've had from cars following really closely. 
I could not agree more. I think it's so underrated. I, going on with the kind of idea of the controversial aspects of the sport being really highlighted, I think it's such a shame that in many ways the interesting or excitingness of a race is measured by the number of DNFs or, you know, there was a very a, a big controversial battle that ended surprisingly controversially, you know, having two drivers wheel to wheel, lap on lap on lap. You're right. If you've got a driver for for more, more than 10 laps right behind you, the tiniest mistake, a lockup, a snap of oversteer, that's your position gone. And it could come at any corner of the track. And the skill it takes to remain in your zone, focusing on your race, it must just be unmatched. And for me, a driver that's really great at this is Sergio Perez. I think he's very underrated for being able to do this kind of thing. Mr. Minister of Defence. I actually think he's done a great job of this this so far this season on focusing on your own race. Okay, what about trumpets? What's your one thing this season that's not controversial, but still pretty cool? I have one thing this that, but I was going to bring up the hamilton Ocon battle in Suzuka for being a okay. long, very close battle that was just tremendously fun to watch. And by all odds... Both participants enjoyed, but that's also because of, I'm a Hamilton and an Alcon fan. So why would I not like that? Um, you know what I want to say? I want to say Williams. I'm going to okay. say Albin at what Williams. What about Williams? Albin at Williams has been a joy. DeVries coming into Williams and doing so well has been spectacular and pointing out that maybe Formula One doesn't have the best way to pick who should come and drive the cars. DeVries has been around forever. He shows up, does a magnificent job. He's got a ride next season. And last, how could I not mention Latifi scoring points before he leaves the sport? You know, yes, round people, of applause. People gave him so much stick, but he has shown up and done his best. And it just makes me happy that, that he's got some small moral victory he can carry away uh, from the sport with him. Because, cause I, you know... As a performer, like you get up on stage, yes, I accept your criticism. If I get up there, fair, fair, fair do. But I think the drivers a lot of time come into a massive amount more criticism than they're actually due, and him perhaps most of all, and and occasionally unfairly. So you know, so but Williams overall, it's just been a breath of fresh air. No, they haven't really moved hugely up the ladder, but they have. They have the kind of spirit, a joie, a joie de vie, I will attempt to pronounce French for Spanish there, that, that just makes me happy to see them on track and improving. So, so that for me has been like my bright spot all season long. Oh, lovely. Well, Nicholas Latifi reminding us that our best is always good enough. Chris, what's your thing of the season? Well, I have to uh, agree with uh, Jeansy in that uh, it's nice to actually be talking about racing and not cost caps and flaws and all this utter drivel that has been making headlines this year that bores the pants off me uh i get excited about racing and that's what mm -hmm. we've seen plenty of um this year thank you matt for acknowledging my man nikki you're welcome who has been doing such an amazing job best driver on the grid did a great uh, job at uh, suzuka missing the chicken missing the chicane yeah. didn't he, uh, did he <laughs> oh wait did he go on to score points in that race i think he did yes. so does it matter who cares no, i didn't even remember he scored I points i care <laughs> would you, do you want to think speaking of forgetting i've totally forgotten that logan Sargent and nick defries are joining the grid next year so that goes <laughs> to show how much i've been paying attention but to answer the question at hand um i would have to go right back to the beginning of the season when we had Ferrari and Red Bull separated by practically nothing 
we were getting a proper championship fight. The racing between them, particularly between Charles Leclerc and Max Verstappen, was just phenomenal. And it was just, it was pure Formula One. And to get that at the very beginning of a new regulation cycle is incredibly rare. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm really glad you've brought that up. I think, especially with the sensationalism that has surrounded the sport, at least in the last few seasons, it was so fantastic to just see some true, pure racing, you know, and I must say, fantastic to see Ferrari up there again. And that, that's why I think it's, it's, it was so sad to see them kind of drift away from the championship over the course of the season. Because of course, in, in recent years, given how long the seasons are beginning to get, if there is a gap at the start of the season, it is then exacerbated over the course of the season. Because we've now got over 20, 20 races over the course of the season. Championship records are being broken. Of course, you know, Max getting the wins record for the season. Will he get 16 race wins? We'll see, I suppose. But it is easier to do that with more races in the season. And so to that tune, we had a question from Tim Rudd, who has asked, how would the panel, uh, oh, no, excuse me, from JP, just SP, what is our ideal season? So number of races spanning over how long, any must-have tracks and tracks that you would blacklist from your F1 season? And where do you start the season and where is your finale? So again, the races are becoming more and more every season in F1, it seems. How many races is too many? What's what's our thoughts, Chris? Back to you. Yeah, so to what I was saying earlier about all the things I've forgotten about this <laughs> season, I mean, I was going through TikTok the the other day and the guy mm-hmm. this guy was going the spanish grand prix was amazing and normally i'd be like yeah it was wasn't it and i had to go spanish oh god what happened at the spanish grand prix this year that is a sign mm-hmm. that there are too many races if people like us start forgetting what's happened in this season i can't remember half of it um and for me it's just it's way way too long now i would scale it back to how many choose the number 18 races tops. okay Go back to making a Grand Prix feel like a special event and not just like Monday night football. Okay. And I would, th- there has to be those historic tracks, Spa, Monza, Silverstone, the absolute classics like that. Monaco? I would keep Monaco. Yeah, I know everyone's okay. going to disagree with me on that, but uh, I would I would personally keep Monaco. There are some modern classics <clears throat> in there mm-hmm. as well, like Bahrain. Uh, yes, for yes. example and then i would have the rest on a rotation uh, on a rotational basis year on year so maybe one year you know we go to uh baku another year we go to i don't know somewhere else i'm forgetting all the tracks in the world now but i think there are so many racetracks that formula one doesn't utilize mm-hmm. and there are let's be honest an awful lot we would happily get see the back of on the current <laughs> F1 calendar. Uh, Name calendar. one. What's one calendar. that you would happily oh, get God, rid the of? The one we just had. <laughs> Mexico, for God's really? sake. Really? Okay. Oh, what, it, what makes you say Mexico? Because because as much as the altitude is, is an interesting point of topic and the circuit may well be fine, but it is fundamentally flawed for Formula One racing when because of the altitude, you can never get more than two seconds close to a, the, the car in front of you. Otherwise, your car's going to explode. And that... <laughs> 
is not good. That's exactly what we've been trying to avoid with this current set of yeah, regulations, of except it's a cooling issue mm-hmm. now. So let's get rid of it. We've never had an interesting race at uh, Mexico since it came back. It's only there because of Sergio Perez in the same way that Zandvoort is only on the calendar for Max Verstappen. But Zandvoort okay. does actually possess the ability to give us an interesting race, like what we saw with this year. So you would keep Zandvoort then? I would I would keep Zandvoort, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I, w- I would really like to see rotational races year on year. Yeah, I think that's becoming more of a popular idea, especially with circuits, again, controversially like Monaco, where they hold so much history and heritage for Formula One. They are just, they are pure joys to have on the calendar. But just in recent years, the quality of racing per se hasn't been so good. And in my opinion, it'll be very interesting to see how some of the newer circuits fare with that. Las Vegas, for example, you know, again, a celebration of Formula One, yes, but race quality questionable. What about you, Trumpets? What's your what's your thoughts on this issue? Well, if freakishly, I came to the exact same number as Chris, thinking 18 was, was really about right. You throw in a summer break, and what you really want, and what I find most tiresome, is, is when there's not a weekend in between the races. Mm-hmm. It makes it really hard. And not just as a viewer, because unlike Chris, like it's perfectly normal for me to not remember what happened back whenever the Spanish Grand Prix was, which was either, you know six months ago or you know, 10 years ago. It could all be the same at my age. But what what is interesting to me is that the news itself, Formula One suffers because the mm-hmm. journalists are all toast. So you don't get a lot of stories. You don't get a lot of reporting because the journalists are, are done for with all the traveling and whatnot. So I, I think there is a happy medium. I could give you 18 races and then let's call them two spectacle races. So we could call Las Vegas a spectacle race, or we could call Monaco a spectacle race, where it's more about the experience of the people there. And let's face it, with record earnings or you know, record earnings coming back to Formula One, it's about the, the sport making more money so that everything is viable. We don't want it to go bankrupt. Fair enough. Of course. <laughs> but, but it is hard. It, it devalues the racing beyond a certain point. I think 20 races should be about the maximum we see in a year, barring special circumstances. And as far as where I'd start, well, I'd start in Australia, because in Australia, you don't really know who's done a good job because it's such a weird one-off race. Where would I end? I would end where you should always end, which is in Brazil, I where we've seen the best agree. endings ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, f- a fantastic race, Brazil, and one I think we're all very, very excited for. Um, back to you, what you said about having the the breaks in between weekends. Are you not a fan of the triple headers? No, no, I really <laughs> am not. It's just it's it's wearing. I don't do as much work as a Formula One journalist does on site, but I do a fair amount of work during the race weekend, and and it is it is tiring. You're giving mm-hmm. up qualifying, watching the practice sessions, reading the stories, reading all the documents from the feed, and then putting it all together so that you can have a show. And the, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work over a weekend. So I I think that that having the weekend off in between keeps it fresher for everybody. It's not so long like Formula E where they would go like you know eight weeks without a race that people forget what's happening. But it's long enough for people to want to, like, I want to see the next episode now. What's going to happen? You know, because, okay, yeah, because you do, you run into family stuff. You run into, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I want to see the race, but I have to go to a wedding. I have to go to a bar mitzvah. I have to go to with this. Oh, you know, I have to go to visit my kid in college. So I can't, I can't watch the race. I'll watch it 
So, so I think that all impacts it and, and it's easier to schedule when it's 20 or less. Okay. Very emphatic. Vangina, you're going to be, are you going to be as, as punctual with yours as, as emphatic with your answers? I don't know what's happened to this show without spanners on it, but I'm going to agree with these two again. Goodness <sighs> um, gracious. Or no, it's ridiculous. Where <laughs> I, I, I Come agree. Come on, Antonio, stir I, the pot. <laughs> I think, I think 18 is about right. Um, uh-huh. I definitely agree on the triple headers and things like that. As a family mm-hmm. man, my, as a family man myself, trying to, um, get family time in around trying to watch every single practice session, every single race, sprint race, qualifying session. And I barely watched pre and post show this year because I just haven't had the time. As for tracks I want to lose, bye-bye Miami. Very, very nice um, try, but just no. I'm vetoing Vegas before it's even happened. They've started driving cars through casinos and trying to make it exciting. That's the only way it's going to be exciting, and that's not going to happen. I don't know if any of you have seen the um, simulated version of the circuit that some people have put on some computer games and simulators. The track looks boring as hell. It's mostly straight lines. Um, I think if they smoothed out a few of the corners, it would just be an oval, and we definitely ain't into that. Um, as for as for tracks, I'd like to see on rotation. I really like that idea that Chris gave. Um, I want to see Turkey back. You know, tracks like tracks like Imola. I think Imola is a really interesting race. I like the circuit, um, but I think that's a track that would actually be better on rotation. Um, I want to get rid of. I would have said Jeddah if um, or uh, Saudi if I hadn't played the F one game, but that thing is a roller coaster. So I understand why the drivers like it. However, the circuits that have particular human rights issues, they can all do one. But unfortunately, and I mean, as a, as a, as a WWE fan and WWE was in Saudi yesterday, the money that they pay for big businesses it's really, really easy to put the blinkers on and go, oh, just take the money, just take the money, just take the money. And whether it's right or wrong, and it's definitely wrong, um, they have to get away from those circuits, but they have to find the money. I think you've raised a really interesting point here. You know, what is our focus as F1 fans? I think this question really makes us think about that. You know, are we here to watch racing just as a sport? You know, as you know, as football games are, when the football's on, you watch the football. Is is that the case with F1? I think as fans, we're a lot more consumed by F1 than other sports fans are with their sports. I definitely think it becomes more of a, a lifestyle choice, I guess, in for all of us, at least, especially. But generally speaking, as an F1 fan, it does take up your whole weekend. You know, some some people will sit, watch the practice sessions, all of the pre-race, you know, the notebooks, the analysis, everything, all the way through from Friday you know, lunchtime to Sunday evening. And, you know, with sprint races, especially that further elongates the weekend. And I I won't get too much into sprint races because I know we've got some very strong opinions in this panel about sprint races. However, if we are looking into the future where we do have more sprint races on top of, say, a 24 race calendar, having thus then sprint races on top of that does just seem ridiculous you know because we forget with these drivers how physical their pursuits are you know they ha- they are truly athletes and having to see them go through 20 something odd races per season 
plus all of the practice sessions, plus all of the media they do and all of the everything aside from that, it does just seem a lot. Right, moving on, we're going to do a little bit of the bosses out of the office so we can be a bit naughty. Let's talk about tyres. I know, very controversial. Um, Sorry, Spanners, if you're listening. Um, We're going to Tim Rudd here, who says, how would the panel rewrite the tyre regulations regarding what is asked of Pirelli and how the teams are meant to use them? Now, I think this is a very good one to do, whilst we don't have have Spanners listening in on us. Um, Obviously, with the tyres, Pirelli, they had a little bit of a I I won't say a a problem last year, but there was a bit of a hiccup with Baku, with tyres, you know, exploding. And whilst we all know tyres are deliberately built not to last the race and there is the compulsory one stop to change onto a different compound. What what would we all say? Do we think that there are some new new tyre regulations that could be brought in to change things about a bit? I'll go to our our resident expert, Mr. Trumpets. What do you think? Well, if you're going to ask me, the thing that I would like to see change the most is a return to much lower tire pressures. Okay. They have been quite high and going higher. And the reason for that is because Pirelli has been chasing the team's tail in terms of the amount of downforce they bring, therefore the amount of energy that is put through the tires. And it's been exacerbated this season because I I think they didn't quite get the construction of the rear tires entirely correct. So they've been running the front tire pressures up to induce understeer to keep the rear tires from having a real problem. But also, I think Mario Isla said in an interview uh, in Mexico that that fundamentally they didn't quite get it right, which new regulations, we can give it to. They got it close enough. We've had some good racing, and we've seen a return to one thing that is fun, uh, uh, leaning towards more rather than fewer pit stops to win a race. It's become more possible to pit and make up the time and win a race. So I think they're on the correct path with that. The interesting thing to me is going to be really the tire blankets um, set for a total ban in 2024. Next season, they were going to go to 50C as part of their tire blanket step down temperatures from 70 this season. Instead, they're just going to reduce it by an hour, but they're going to have to entirely redesign the tires so that they will work out of the gate. And um, I I'm actually, I'm a fan of that. I want to see what happens with that because I like the idea of making it a little more challenging for the drivers managing the tires out of the pits. And I like the idea that the teams won't have to spend the money on the blankets and that we won't have to spend the money uh, transporting all those big, heavy, expensive things all over the world. It's a good change, but it's, it's a tall ask for Pirelli. Yeah, of course, changing the rules from three hours of blanket use to two hours seems like a very small thing, but it actually could have some pretty big, you know, impacts on the, how the tyre warm up goes. Max Verstappen, a direct quote, said that it could lead to, quote, a lot of crashes. You know, this does potentially have a big impact on lap times, on tyre warm up. If the, if the cars are going out, especially on the harder tyres, on, on cold, hard tyres, that's going to take a good couple of outlaps almost to kind of get them up to temperature. Chris, what do you think? I'm all for the tyre blanket ban. Uh, these people are saying is, is a mistake or is going to cause problems, need to go and watch F2 because they have no problem with it whatsoever. Neither do a lot of championships that also do not run uh, tyre blankets. Um, you could maybe argue Formula One's a different uh, kettle of fish, but they're the greatest drivers in the world, so they should be able to handle it. I would either, with the tyres, make them wear quicker because we need more strategic variety in races, and it needs to be 
to a point where it's worth making a second pit stop, which a lot of the times it isn't at the moment. Ever since they've reduced the pit lane speed from 100 to um, 80 kilometers an hour, or even 60 kilometers an hour in some of the pit lanes, the tighter ones in Singapore and Australia, for example, after Mark Webber lost a wheel that hit a cameraman in 2013, the idea of making extra stops has been has been really pushed back because you lose Mm -hmm. so much more time in the pits now so they either need to increase the benefit of making a second stop or we stick with what we got and they just remove this idea that you have to do a uh, a tire change if somebody wants to do a hard tire all the way through the race or two people want to use two uh two mediums in a in a race let that fan out because it's a it's 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 a system that they ran in the past and it seemed to work quite well well i think that's you know as we've said i think that could really lead to some very interesting discourse over the next few years we've obviously got some very interesting new changes not just next season but with these tire issues and with the new engine manufacturers it seems we have a lot to look forward to in the next few seasons Okay, everyone. Well, I think we're going to end it there. Thank you so much for sending in all of your questions. We always have so much fun unpacking all of these. We will be back next Sunday for the Brazil Race Review, where Spanners will be back and no doubt reeling from our tyre talk. How dare we? Um, But that's all from us. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you all very, very soon. Thanks, guys. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.